The Deal with Yield is a podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. Tune in to episodes on iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. Welcome back to The Deal with Yield with our two hosts, Kyle Weiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. Before farmers start planting for the 2017 season, what can we learn from last year's data that might help? Well, I think this year, Winfield United's data looks a lot like trying to help growers make key decisions. And with commodity prices the way they are, the difference between the red and the black might be as little as $15 per acre. And so there's some key learnings out of the answer plots this year that growers that are engaged in this can really take home to their farm and try to add a degree of predictability around some of the hybrids that they've maybe never planted on their farm, how those hybrids might respond in different environments, as well as utilizing some of the technology tools in there to aid in those predictive decisions that you've got to make. So Kyle, what are some of the decisions that we're trying to help farmers with this year? I think first and foremost, you got to look at genetics. The advancements in genetics have been over years. Depending on the year you look, it's been between four and seven bushels with new products that are coming to market. And trying to figure out where those genetics work, how they work, what kind of trait package that goes on them, that's all in that decision-making process. And that's where we're at right now and moving forward, trying to achieve the 300-bushel average yield that they're predicting. Yeah, I think the genetic diversity, you always talk about there are no silver bullet hybrids. Something might do really well on your farm, but you've still got to divide that out and make sure that you've got those on the right acres, but you don't get too much of one product in your lineup. Kyle, what sort of diversity do you see? How many hybrids does your average farmer plant? I think somewhere between five and nine, depending on the amount of acres that you have. Obviously, you got five varieties and you go across 8,000 acres. That's not in the best interest unless you have two soil types. Or three soil types. I think the biggest thing is to look at your variety and figure out your management style. Are you going to push the population, not push the population? Are you going to manage nitrogen on it? You're not going to manage nitrogen on it. Those are the key things. Every customer is different on what they want to do and what they want to achieve. And I think uh, the varieties are picked specifically for the management style on the farm. As you look at the answer plot data, what were some of the trends that you saw last year in yield alone? In the corn... They was really deceiving, and I was pretty dead wrong when I went out and I collected the ears and I did the counts of the kernels. And and I think what we had in our space up here in the upper Midwest is the kernel depth is what I didn't have part in my calculation. I counted the kernels, and I didn't have to take off my shoes. And I just didn't uh, didn't see the depth of the kernels and, and the weight. But as a whole, through Minnesota, parts of North and South Dakota, and down in Iowa and Wisconsin – our yields were 5% or better than what they were in 2015. And there was parts in Nebraska and parts of Illinois and Indiana that were 5% less. So I think it kind of varied across the United States on where it was. And don't get me wrong, we had a great crop, great, great crop, stuff that I've never seen before on yields come across in the monitors. I just didn't see it coming as high as it was. Yeah, visiting with some of those producers and retailers out in Ohio and Indiana – they really had a wet spring, and that doesn't set you off right. So, you know, the two months that tend to really have a big impact in our growing environment are April and August. And if it's wet in April and dry in August, you're going to have a big chance of being a little under average. Man, there was some really good soybean yields this year across whole fields. Decreased white mold pressure, 
in Iowa, we saw a big surgence of sudden death syndrome. And then there was some awkward stuff in the south that popped up from an eye spot standpoint, some new fungal diseases coming in down there. What sort of soybean yields did you see? You know, as a whole, we achieved goals across the nation that were much higher than we had anticipated from the year before. And I didn't know if that could be replicated. We were well over 5% higher in 2016. I think products like Elevo and other products out there for SDS, I think, are helping. You can see a definite line on demos and other things out there where you put the seed treatment on there and it doesn't affect the soybean. It's like unprotected. So I think there's a lot of things that are going in our favor. The fungicide applications, you know, that would be another thing that are seen year after year are beneficial. I think we're just doing a better job as an industry and, and farming to achieve these. What did we see from a response to population last year? And compare that over the last couple of years and what you thought the average response to population was. So in 2015 on corn, there was an 8.2 bushel advantage to driving a little bit of population. And from 2016, we had a 10.2. And a lot of that has to do with how we managed it also and, and mineralization that we had in the soil. If we had more than adequate amount of water. And I've never in my career seen water like we have the last two years in my space. And parts of it, we were 10 to 15 inches more than normal. And that has 100% responsive on the amount of bushels that we pull off those fields, too. And maybe some of that whining about the rain you don't get is paying off. I figured it was the tears running down my face that helped with the water. That could be. That could be. Stimulating the clouds is evaporation. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, along with the right population, the right genetics, and genetics have this soil-type interaction. What do you see out of the advantage of the answer plots showing this response to soil-type on hybrids that you maybe haven't tried on your farm? I think a big thing on the response to soil type is how does the hybrid react to multiple soil types and stresses that are in that field. And using a tool like the R7 to write a variable script on backing down the populations or driving them, we're just doing a better job as planting. The the big thing in going back to this population thing, you only got one time to do it right. You go out there and you rush through it and you don't get the population, you can't go back and fix that. So taking your time running through your planter, putting it up on stand units and making sure that it's calibrated ready to go when the weather and the soil types are above 50 and take your time to do it. We need to relax as agronomy staff and farmers out there just to take our time and do it right because you can't put it back in the bag and redo it the next week. You got one shot. Any surprises with new technology? Yeah, I think some of the comfort levels with uh, some of the nitrogen advisors came along last year where we were implementing those on farms and being able to see some of the fields that were running short on nitrogen and actually go out and do something about that, being able to side dress those. So from a technology standpoint, identifying nitrogen deficiencies is one thing, but being able to show that split applications of nitrogen have real yield impacts, I think that was one of the surprises for me last year that there were some really big differences. I know, Kyle, you've got some answer plot data on split applications. What did we see? So looking at just the base rate and then split plying it, we actually picked up a 5.5 bushel advantage just splitting up your nitrogen application. And I think that has a lot to do with the amount of moisture that we had and then getting the nitrogen down when the plant needs it. As we find with these newer genetics, they're using nitrogen later than they've ever have before. And so beyond that, we took it to the next level and we looked at applying through the Y-drop system in that V9, V10 stage, and we actually picked up another 
just about two bushel advantage up over top of just a side dress at V4, V5. So I think that goes to show a lot of learning what we didn't know. Yeah, it seems that uh, putting your nitrogen down all in one spot up front puts you at risk. And I think about it, one of the things I'm learning about as we go along here is some of our yield goals, especially in regions of the country that don't get consistent rainfall, some of our yield goals in some of the plain states might be 100 bushel corn, might be 70 bushel corn. And all of a sudden, those folks get a little bit more rain, and their yield goal changes from a 100-bushel yield goal to a 200-bushel yield goal based on how the snowpack cleared in the wintertime and, and how much extra spring rain they got. And so all of a sudden, your yield goal goes way up based on that and being able to apply a little bit in the fall for what you think you're going to get and then knowing more about the crop in season – But one of the things that, in particular, some of our ag technology specialists pointed out this year is after they looked at the nitrogen model, they also had to look at that hybrid's response to nitrogen score and know that, you know, a model maybe told you that you were 10 pounds to the good, where you were going to be in good shape on nitrogen. But then you had to remind that seller or that grower that that's also a hybrid that really is responsive to nitrogen management. And maybe an extra 20, 30 pounds might be needing to be included on that. So, Or even the likelihood that it's a hybrid that has a low response. I think this nitrogen timing piece, we can't put it all down in one spot and expect that it pans out at the end of the year. We can really use some of the predictability of the answer plot data followed by some of the technology tools for measuring that. I think a lot of it is, like you said, Joel, is looking at a model, time, temperature, moisture, and amount of rainfall, and how it percolates down through the soil, whether it goes up in the air with uh, denitrification or if it leaches down through, split applying and making sure that process is when the nitrogen is there when the plant needs it. And that's pretty neat when we have a model. Now, are the models 100% right or wrong? I wouldn't go out to say that they're all 100% accurate, but they are a model, and it's something that we can scorecard ourselves on. And then tissue sample, or we can come out and do pre-side dress nitrate samples to help bring validity to these models. And then we can also go out there in the fall and do stock nitrate. So we can see where at the end up, how, how that and the basal nitrates were the same as or different than what the models say The thing we always like to think about is cost of inputs per bushel or optimizing inputs per bushel. And there's a lot of attention out there on sustainability. And it's always interesting in this game for chasing yield, the most sustainable bushels are the last ones that we produce because those are the ones that took the fewest inputs to produce. So one of the things that was interesting this year is looking at fungicide response by state. And some of the states that we typically see a pretty high response to fungicide and corn, or we see those states apply a lot of fungicide, didn't have the same results that they usually do. But then there was some new states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Missouri, and Indiana, where there was anywhere from a 19 to 31 bushel average yield response to fungicide out there. So certainly this is all a genetics by environment game. And fungicide, whether they had high rates of disease infestations, really had an impact on some of those states. I think the other thing we need to think about, too, on the hybrids that we're selecting, in those spaces, you get to that 110 to 115-day market down there. Some of them might not respond. Maybe they're good, healthy plants for gases and leaf diseases. So that might be something that's masking a little bit on that data. But I think it's a great message out there for the four states that had a big response that we normally don't see. What did you see? Anything on soybeans on fungicide, Joel? 
Yeah, well, in addition to good soybean yields across the U.S., there was, uh, you know, the top four states had above a two and a half bushel average response to fungicide. The top four states were Minnesota, Wisconsin, Tennessee, and Iowa actually had some of the highest responses to fungicide this last year when we broke that down. And I think that coupled along with not having an early frost this year, that extra photosynthetic activity that we extend on the soybeans a little bit helps them collect some sunlight late in the season right before they start to die off. So I think that coupled with some high disease pressure, coupled with the late frost, the fungicide on soybeans was really extended our growing season. I think the ethylene slowed it down this year. We did have the rainfall. We finally got a full season that we didn't have to worry about on frost, and I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, we had a lot of Satoria brown spot that showed up early in Minnesota, and I think the fungicide application helped that out a lot also. What's the ethylene thing? Ethylene thing, just like I tell my kids, if you separate the bananas on the counter, there's ethylene that naturally emits from the bananas and, and they'll last longer. It's the same thing in soybeans or tomatoes or anything like that. If you get one ripe banana or one ripe tomato or, or ripening soybeans out in the field, this gas is emitted and everything else starts to snatch and go from there. So that's one thing that it slows down an ethylene process and using a fungicide. So one bad banana can spoil the whole batch? I think that was an egg. An egg, Joel. Maybe it was an apple. Are you ready for an audience question today? Let her rip, potato chip. (laughs) Dale from Commodity Classic asks, any answer plot results on how soybeans respond to starter fertilizer, zinc, or other nutrients? So soybean response to starter. I want to be really careful with everybody listening to this because soybeans are extremely salt-sensitive. And there's a time and a place where we're looking at soybean fertility in furrow matters. But the one caveat I want to caution everybody, adding 10340 to soybeans in furrow is a good way to kill your soybeans. So when we look at starter fertilizers, making sure that there's a a low salt content is one of the key pieces. I think back to a study we did in South Dakota where we actually put on five gallons of 103040 in furrow, and then it rained and rained and rained, and the soybeans actually grew. So the quick caveat there is if you get rain, it might be okay. But if you don't get rain and that salt starts to sequester that water back out of there, you could be in a world of hurt. Uh, what have you seen for in-furrow treatments of soybeans? You know, when I was up in the valley up by Fargo, we used to do some stuff up there on some lighter grounds. The P&K was a little lower, 318.18. You know, there's a few guys running that. There's some other things. It's just like you alluded to. If you don't have the moisture in the ground and that big drink of water goes in that seed, and it's a death wish. It's one way that we can double crop up here and you can plant twice <laughs> but normally we don't get that opportunity or want to you know that every year a guy's like hey i got some extra 1034 left in the tank and i put it on a beans and i'm like uh no but i know they do dilute it down and they go with that and they're like oh it worked great and i'm like this year so be careful if you decide to do that make sure it's watered down so that the salt is down and we're looking at soybeans in a lot of different directions we're looking at a system with management, we're looking at lots of different stuff in the answer plots. I think the one thing that you got to remember if you're going to try something like this, you got to think like a soybean. And soybean being a dicot versus corn being a monocot, that actually that seed package is going to come above ground 
and it's not going to interface as well with the nutrients that you put in furrow. So some of the responses to micronutrients and things that we've seen in corn, we've had a tough time getting those same responses out of beans in that way. We've tried some different micronutrients on the seed coating, and the results haven't been as consistent as what we'd like to see. You've been listening to The Deal with Yield with our host, Kyle Weiner, Winfield United Master Agronomy Advisor, and Joel Whipperfirth, Winfield United Ag Technology Applications Lead. For additional episodes of The Deal with Yield, visit iTunes, My Farm Radio, and thedealwithyield.com. 